sometime recently, within the last year or two, I decided to examine my criteria for a successful Dharma talk. And uh, I decided if one person heard one thing that was useful, that was, that was a, a successful talk. And it's, it's increased my chances of success exponentially. <laughs> and it's really been a good move. <laughs> I was noticing I was uh, feeling a bit tired. I'm a little jet lagged still from traveling here from out west and I've had a a cold that's mm, run me down a little bit. It's lingering on the way out. I was feeling kind of tired and I was reminded of a story one of my colleagues told me about her teacher, a man named Gil Fronsdahl, teaches in California and he spent some time living in a Within a, I think it was a Korean Zen monastery, and he, he told a story about how one of his teachers, uh, the Zen master, actually fell asleep while giving a Dharma talk. <laughs> and uh, and Gil, Gil said he, he, he aspires to be that relaxed. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if it's going to happen tonight, <laughs> but if it does, it's not necessarily a bad sign. <laughs> mm. Well, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> I used to live in San Francisco, California. I lived there for about 10 years, and uh, haven't, it's been quite a while since I, I lived there, but I was uh, visiting there some years ago, visiting friends. I still have a lot of friends in that area. And I'd spent the day, I was you know on, on holiday, you could say, so I'd spent the day messing around in the city, I don't remember what, but I was walking down to uh, where I could get on a bus to go and meet uh, my friend who I was going to spend the night staying with uh, some friends. I was meeting one of them after work or a class, and uh, it was it was about this time of day, actually. And I was in the middle of the city, tall buildings, but I, I came to this one square block that was an open space, and there were these two tall trees there. And above them, there was a flock of birds, uh, probably in the thousands. It was a big group of birds. And some, some kinds of birds, starlings do this, and maybe some blackbirds will get in these large flocks. And they move in a way that's like a single kind of organism. I don't know uh, if any of you may have seen this sometimes. It's actually uh, people who study these things call it a murmuration which is one of those lovely words that kind of sounds like, like what it is. There may be a murmuring sound that comes. And they, I watched this flock and it was, it was huge. And it was like a huge cell moving and pulsing and swirling above this open space in the middle of the city. And it would, it would narrow down to this little neck with two bulbs and come together. And it was just like... And there was one guy who was filming it with a, like a, you know, these things (laughs) that you, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) You can film with your, (laughs) these things, Uh, iPhone kind of thing. And, uh, and one woman looked at it and turned to me and said, they shouldn't be doing that, should they? And she was you know, it's upsetting. But no one else I saw walking on the street noticed it at all. They were all 
kind of heads down, cruising along, most of them looking at these different kinds of small devices. And, um, and to me, you know, like this miracle was occurring and uh, it, was, it was poignant to me that, um, that most people didn't notice it at all. And you know, it's something, I think, I, I, me- I remember this, I think of it, and it just like lifts my heart to think of these birds. They finally, they narrowed down and they split into two and circled above these trees and then landed in the trees and were making this unbelievable sound of talking about how cool it was to have done that. <laughs> is, that's what I think, you know, maybe they, I don't know if birds talk in that way, but it seemed like they were just saying, wow, look what we just did. That was so great way to end the day. And things like this, you know, sometimes experiences like that, or sometimes this time of day or in the morning when the sun is rising or the sun is setting and and I, I happen to be in a position to see it and I remind myself that it's a star, you know, that that's a star, the sun is a star. And it took the light eight minutes, a little over eight minutes to get here from that star. And that light makes all life possible on this planet. But you know, it might have gone out. It takes eight minutes. If it went out six minutes ago, it's possible. Maybe not so likely. But I sometimes find that, you know, opening in this way, things like this, experiences or reflections like this, they have a way of, they kind of open us to, they take us out of sometimes a, our, our often kind of smaller self-absorbed lives and, and open us to something that's kind of mysterious and amazing in the world. You know, I like to read about, I, I like astronomy magazines and articles and I was reading about scientists who had seen a supernova when a when a big star explodes and it was, you know, 60 million light years away or something. So it happened that long ago. And in the article they said the reason they like to check these things out is because the only reason we have anything heavier than a gas in the universe is because of these exploding stars. So, you know, all of us and this bell and toaster ovens, and they're all the result of a star exploding. I mean, how wild is that? That is so cool. We actually are made out of stardust. Some star exploded, and so that's how come we're sitting here hanging around, enjoying or hating the Starma talk. (laughs) And, And there's this, you know, there's so much to life in the universe that's so wonderful and mysterious in this way. But we, we, we lose sight of it, I think, often. You know, and we know so much. We have a lot of information in our minds. And, and it, it can limit us. And, and I think one of the things that meditation uh, and our practice may have the capacity to do is to open us, open up uh, us up beyond all that we think we know and the, the boundaries of what we believe to be real and true because we tend to solidify and condense the world and ourselves by what we believe about it 
by the ideas we hold. And they can really limit us and our world can become narrow. And what we hold as possible for us can become limited as a result as well. And as Rebecca was speaking about last night, we tend to live a lot of our lives in, in the realm of concepts rather than our direct connection to life. And we take for granted that this is the whole picture and we, we often just don't even look to see if, if it's true or not. But meditation does have this um, possibility, this capacity to, to drop us down to a non-conceptual kind of level, relationship to things below the realm of uh, concepts as Rebecca spoke about. And connecting to our life in this way is not only uh, transforming, but I think it's also has the potential to be very healing for us. It leads us to, do, to reconnect with, rediscover our, our true nature in a way. You know, we, I think our modern life, especially maybe if we live in, in cities, but, but not only those of us who do live in the city, often leads us to feeling at times quite numb or cut off and disconnected from uh, other people, other beings, from the life, at least at times. And um, we can feel, um, we separate ourselves from nature, from a flock of birds like that at times. You know, we talk, we use, look at how we use language. We t- spot, take about nature's, it's out there. I go out into nature as though it's, it's over there somewhere and it's separate from and other than me. We tend to hold ourselves apart from nature. And this leads to all kinds of problems and how we live in the world. But it's not true. You know, these minds, these bodies, they are nature. It's all stardust, all that stuff out there and anything that arises in this mind and body and heart. It's all the same stuff. It's just arranged in different ways. It's just all nature. We are part of the landscape, part of the environment. We come from it, we're supported by it, and we will return to it. These bodies and minds are an aspect of nature and all we're doing in our practice is observing nature, observing natural processes. And we observe it internally in our own mind and body and heart, and we observe it in the world around us externally. That's all we're doing here is observing nature. Uh, Someone, somewhere I heard this, I think it comes from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, a famous Thai monk. I don't want to say, I don't want to credit him. I, it's possible I just made it up. But, um, but it's a nice quotation that I'm fond of using. Some of you have probably heard me say it. But somebody once said that what we're doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. 
And there's something I think actually quite profound and true in this simple statement. Something that really can be powerful for us because in a real sense, that's what we're doing here. We're giving it back to nature. We're coming back into harmony, into a kind of alignment with the nature and everything that we can experience in the body and mind is just this unfolding of natural processes. <clears throat> and as we re- really start to touch into this, as this starts to inform how we live, there's this um, relaxation that starts to happen where we, we put down, when we let go of ownership of it, let go of what we mistakenly appropriated as I, as me, as mine, as our own, we re- there's a relaxation and we lay, we lay down a burden that we, we just didn't realize we were carrying in doing that and holding it that way. <clears throat> I was talking about exploding stars and beautiful flocks of birds and how amazing these things can be, but, but the mind is even more amazing if we really check it out. I mean, this ability to know things, to know experience, to know our life, it's, it's incredible. You can't find a mind anywhere. You can't find it as a thing. But there's this process that happens, contact at our senses, and then the mind arises, knowing arises in relation to that. It's magic. Check it out right now. Just right now, sitting here. This quality of awareness. There's awareness right now. Maybe it's awareness of the sound of my voice or the feeling of your body sitting there. But it's there. We're all sitting here and there's awareness. These minds are functioning. And we're not doing it. Excuse me. Can you imagine if we had to do it? <laughs> Boy, that would be a big, that'd be a lot of work. We had to okay, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna know. <laughs> and you know, kind of knuckle down and, and, and do it. I mean, right now we can be sitting here, you can be aware of your body sitting, the sound of my voice, the feeling of the air in here. The mind is running all these unbelievably complex processes to keep this body functioning. And it's just happening. Now there's something wonderful and marvelous and mysterious and magical. But we, we, we don't notice it. You know, it's so, it's so part of our, how we live. It's so part of our experience. It's so part of our lives that we just don't even notice it most of the time. It's so taken for granted, it goes completely unnoticed. But this awareness, this ability to know our lives, to meet our lives, to actually show up for, for our lives, to meet what's going on, to know what's going on, this is a complete game changer this quality of mindfulness, of awareness, the sati, 
ability to pay attention to what's going on, just to connect with our life, to actually be there, it changes everything. With, with, with this, everything is possible. With mindfulness, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. Without it, we just live out our conditioning. We're just running on automatic. It changes everything. It's worth appreciating and noticing it. Falling in love with it. It's marvelous. And so in meditation, in our practice here, what we're doing is, is um, exploring our life through this ability to show up for it, to be present, to know what's going on. In this very simple, direct way, there's contact in the body, contact in the mind. And then we bring awareness to that. We know what's going on. And the cool thing is that there's nothing that arises that we can't be mindful of. Absolutely nothing. And there's nothing, this is even cooler, there's nothing in our experience that isn't, uh, can't serve us as a vehicle for understanding, for the arising of liberating insight. It actually doesn't matter what's happening. Because from the meditative perspective, everything is equal in an essential way. All experiences, gross or subtle, pleasant or unpleasant, it's all equal in that it all can serve to show us the truth of things. The truth of nature is revealed in anything that arises. So there's nothing, I hope you're hearing this, there is nothing in in our experience that falls outside the scope of our practice. This is great news. We are golden here because it just doesn't matter in an ultimate way. Now, that's not to say that some things aren't more difficult to be with than other things. Of course they are. But it's really important and I think very empowering to uh, remember the truth of this, to remind ourselves of it once in a while. It's like, okay, yeah, whatever. This too, I can be with this. It's just as good as anything else. And there's a, a kind of, there's an aspect of what we might call a wise or right view in this understanding that can lead us uh, to the heart of what the Buddha taught and to um, the possibility of, um, of finding a, a strategy for finding real, real happiness and freedom and peace. If I took a survey here tonight in the hall and I asked you all, uh, you know, why did you come to this retreat? What, would, what brings you to meditation practice and, and what brought you to the retreat? You know, what's your motivation in coming to do this and in undertaking a meditation practice, a spiritual life, however you hold that? You might get 
you know, a, a number of different answers on one level, but I think um, that all of us would say that there's a motivation for, um, that's born of a longing for a deeper meaning in our lives, deeper connection to life, maybe a sense of dissatisfaction with um, conventional ways of, of holding things, of seeing things. Rebecca touched on this last night, I think. You know, so, some way that we maybe have are questioning the conventional offerings for uh, as strategies for finding happiness. You know, wondering if they'll ever really work, seeing that there there maybe there's some flaws in in all the conventional strategies for finding happiness. You know, will they ever bring lasting kind of happiness? Maybe we've tried a lot of things. I remember when I was first uh, came to meditation practice, I was living in San Francisco and I had a great life. Had an interesting job and great colleagues who I was working with and a really cool motorcycle <laughs> and a nice leather jacket to go with it and you know, a lot of fun. There was nothing wrong in my life. And, and yet at a certain point I realized that, you know, it was like, it was, I was at a place of, well, is this it? You know, I felt like I'd tried so many things, everything I could think of, and it all kind of was seeming to fall short. And there wasn't any overt problem there. And we all want happiness, you know, all of us share that wish. We might not use the word happiness, ease, peace, contentment, fulfillment. When I say happiness, all of those kinds of things, you might hold it in a different way. That word might not uh, really touch how you feel that, but all beings share this desire to be at ease, to be at peace, to be happy. And it's natural, normal, it's actually beautiful, inherently lovable movement of the mind and heart. And it's good to remind ourselves, I think, that all of the stuff we get up to, all of our struggles and the shenanigans that we get into in our lives, are, are a lot, they're pretty much all born of this movement of heart. We're trying to find a way to be happy. We just kind of get off track sometimes. And no wonder, we're not offered a lot of good options <laughs> in, the, in the sort of culture, you could say. You know, what, what is happiness and where do we look for it? What are the strategies? You know, in, in one way, what our culture mostly offers us as the, the route to happiness is the um, is following the energy of the wanting mind of desire in the mind, <clears throat> and it can it shows up in a couple of ways. Desire tells us uh, a couple of things. It either tells us that there's something lacking that we need to get in order to be happy and to feel complete, or there's something we got to get rid of to be okay. That's kind of the two ways it shows up. And the most obvious way that we can see this manifesting uh, is in terms of, of very deeply conditioned responses to what we experience as pleasant and unpleasant on all sorts of levels. 
And so desire grasping movement towards tends to arise in relation to things that we experience as pleasant and resistance pushing away aversion tend to, tends to arise in relation to things that we find unpleasant. And both of these tend to create in us an attitude of if only, if only I could get this thing, then I'd be happy. Or if only I could get rid of this thing. And look at the world of, of commerce and advertising and all of that. It's, it's based on this. It's either something to get so you'll be happy or something to get so that you can get rid of the thing that's making you unhappy. <laughs> It's so much this based on this. It's, it's, con- it's the purpose of it all is to convince us that there's something that's missing in one of these ways, something that we need to get. And it's not that there's something wrong with having pleasant ex- experiences or trying to um, avoid what we find painful and, and is hard for us to, that's difficult. It's not that that's, uh, these are wrong. And given how difficult life is, it's, it's good to have pleasant experiences. And we, no one wants to experience pain and suffering. It's natural. But <clears throat> we get both, right? We get pleasant and unpleasant. That's just the deal. If you take birth in this realm, you get some of both. And that's just the way it is. We can't avoid unpleasant sensations. But what happens through this whole process is that our strategy for finding happiness becomes this attempt to string together as many pleasant feelings in a row as possible, while at the same time trying to avoid having any unpleasant ones get in there. And you know, it sounds kind of crazy when you talk about it that way, but but, you know, look and see how we we live, how, what's driving the world so much of the time. It's this push-pull movement towards pleasant, away from unpleasant. And we see it in gross ways and we can see it in very subtle ways in our mind and heart as we sit here on the cushion. And of course it can be so, become so extreme for some people, some of us. We, We can fall into these addictive kinds of patterns of either trying to get a pleasant feeling or trying to not feel an unpleasant one, or a combination of those those two. And the intense craving that comes with that when it is taken to an extreme. And then we can just see it here as we sit in meditation and the way that we assess our sitting. I had a good sitting. What was going on? Well, I don't know, but often it's a higher percentage of times when there was a pleasant feeling in the mind and body. And a bad one, it was unpleasant more of the time. Check and see, because we all will do this, right? You know, I had a good sitting. We'll say, we'll say it in a group or to, to ourselves. Oh, that was a good sitting. What was going on there? Check it and see. And so the problem is not in having pleasant or unpleasant experiences. We have them both. But, but if we think that true happiness can be found in this, in this endless movement towards pleasant and trying to avoid the unpleasant, and this endless 
a search for, for the next pleasant one. Trying to avoid what we don't like, it sets us up for an exhausting life. And some of us have felt this, know this in our bones, you know. It's ultimately doomed to frustration, failure, and suffering. Because <clears throat> we can't pull it off for very long at any one time. You know, we have times when, when we can, but it doesn't ever last very long. But we don't want to see it. You know, it seems like there's, there's a mistake or it's bad news and there's something wrong here and it's clearly our fault if we can't, you know, make it happen. And, you know, look at the TV commercials. The people, they're so beautiful and they're having such a good time. <laughs> and, you know, we're, that's, we're supposed, that's supposed to be us. You know, and if we get the thing... Not only will we be happy, we'll be beautiful like them too. You know, that's the, that's the conditioning in all of that. And we're secretly holding out a, a hope that, you know, we're going to reach a state where it is only pleasant. You know, as, that, as if that's the goal of, of meditation. You know, some steady state where it's always how we want it to be and, and that's probably going to be kind of pleasant feeling. But we can't make this happen. And, and it's not that we shouldn't try to live as well as we can or to fall into resignation or despair or giving up. That's not the point. <clears throat> and so, so what do we do then? You know, what, what might be reliable? If this strategy isn't really going to work, what might be a reliable uh, strategy? If we, if we can't control life and get it to be just the way we want it to be, which we try, we try, we, we don't give up on this one. <laughs> we keep trying it. But if we can't get it to the way we want it and get it to stay like that, what do we do? You know, this is a big problemo. But if we want to get to the root of this problem, we have to connect with, you could say, the depth and the breadth of the, uh, there's a kind of insecurity that, that, um, that arises, um, that underlies this predicament, the situation. And, you know, this is what, in a certain way, you could say this is what led the Buddha to his spiritual journey. And he, he, uh, he did a lot of the work for us, you know, and, and it's saving us some trouble and time. And, and, and through his exploration, the Buddha came to a key understanding, an understanding that's really key for us in, in exploring this. What he found was that struggle, stress, suffering in relation to this inherently unreliable, uncontrollable, unpredictable world of pleasant and unpleasant, joy and sorrow, and all the rest that we get and we live a life, these uh, worldly conditions, he found that, that struggle and stress and suffering in relation to that isn't so much because of the conditions and circumstances, isn't so much because of this uh, changing, unreliable world and life, but that it results from how we relate to that. It's, it results from our relationship to it. And that's, you know, it seems so obvious when we talk about it. 
<clears throat> so you could say, in essence, it's wanting things to be not like they are. This, the, all our attempts to control and manipulate experience, trying to hold on to certain things, keep them there, when just their nature is to change and disappear. They don't do it. And it seems obvious maybe, but it runs counter to our conditioning in the usual way that we approach life. And we're so conditioned to look outside ourselves for both the source of our difficulty, our stress, our suffering, our unhappiness, and the solution to it. This, this conditioning is really strong for us. But this, this discovery of the Buddha, that suffering and non-suffering are to be found in that relationship, this is actually really good news. This is great news for us. It's very hopeful. <clears throat> because if it's totally due to external circumstances and conditions, we would be hopeless because we, we have limited control at best over that. You know, we don't know what's coming down the pike. And we can't get things to, to be the way we want them to be and stay that way. And so what the Buddha saw and what he passed on in his teachings and what we have to draw on in that is that we have a misunderstanding. We want happiness, but we have a misunderstanding about what might actually lead us to that. But that we can actually undo this misunderstanding. We can learn a new way of seeing, a new way of living. And since the key to freedom and peace and happiness can be found within our own heart and mind in terms of the relationship that we have to our life and experience, then we can learn something new. That's, that's a workable place. That's a place where we really have some, uh, we can get some traction there. We can learn how to meet our lives and the conditions there from a place of some ease and balance that doesn't depend on having it be any particular way. We can find freedom right within the changing conditions that we find. <clears throat> the Buddha once made a very famous statement, a short one-liner. He said, Now and before I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. <clears throat> and everything he, the volumes of stuff, all comes down to trying to elucidate that, understand that, point to what's going on. If we want to find the end of stress, suffering, struggle, we have to s figure out and understand the cause of it and let go of that. That's how we find happiness, peace, freedom. Not by getting something, but by letting go of the cause of our struggle and suffering. So we have to s understand it. And so if we, if we bring this understanding that it, that under, that that, that the key to that can be found in our relationship to experience, then this can lead to it, it transforms um, the way we, um, we relate to our life because we can move from seeing the circumstances and, and um, experiences that we have as we live we move from seeing them in terms of good and bad and right and wrong and what we like and don't like and what we want and don't want, but we, we can start to see it in terms very simply of, of what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. 
terms of suffering and non-suffering. And this, this opens the door to the whole practice, this shift in our uh, way of holding things. It's where we start, it's where the Buddha started. And we have to start with this understanding that it's in the relationship to our experience where we can find where suffering and, and happiness, where the key to that is. Because if we don't start with this understanding, we're always going to be looking for a way out of this situation by turning to that which in its very nature is unreliable and ultimately incapable of providing us any road to get there, to get to happiness. And so by opening to this understanding, it leads us to, to turn to that which might actually be a reliable source of happiness, a reliable pathway there. So in our practice, in our meditation, we bring this quality of, of present moment mindfulness, mindful awareness, and we, we infuse that with um, some qualities of of friendliness, acceptance, kindness, as much as we can. And as we do this, we start to um, cultivate some stability um, and balance of mind. It starts to, starts to grow a little bit, and we often don't notice that, but it does start to, to arise starts to happen. And this, these qualities of the stability and balance of mind allows us to see what's happening, allows us to connect um, with things with so enough space to actually check out what's going on rather than just being caught in uh, reactivity and habitual responses. And there's a natural kind of, of what we could call wise discernment that starts to arise in this. Because we start to see directly in our own mind and heart what is, you could say, skillful or wholesome or leading towards happiness and what doesn't lead that way, what isn't. What leads to happiness, what leads to suffering. We see this in our own internal landscape. We see how it manifests and plays out in the world around us. And this opens us to the possibility of uh, making choices, wise choices, in terms of the kinds of energies that we want to follow. The energies that arise in the mind and heart, which ones are worth cultivating and following and which ones we should let go of, abandon, set aside. And so this gives the possibility that we're not, actually, we're not just running on automatic. We're not just living out our conditioning. This, this puts us into the realm of actually having some choice in terms of the direction of our life. <clears throat> but this is a radical shift for us. You know, and we, we have maybe lifetimes of conditioning that's been going the other way, <laughs> right? So it's not gonna happen overnight or even if it makes sense and yeah, I see it, I'm gonna do that now. But but then, you know, we fall back. It's like we have these well-worn grooves. We're trying to 
get out of them, but the tendency to fall back into them is really strong. And so we have to um, bear this in mind because it, this, this understanding goes against our conditioning so strongly. And it takes a lot of patience, a sense of gentle perseverance and kindness maybe above all to stick with this and keep at it because it's not easy. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna go to any real depth in the practice, if any understanding is gonna come from this, what we're putting ourselves through <laughs> on a retreat like this, you know, we're gonna have to meet these minds and hearts and bodies really directly in an undistracted and really intimate way. Our whole practice could be seen and held as a process of deepening intimacy with this mind and body and heart. And through that, it's a deepening intimacy with nature. That's what we're doing here. And it's not easy to do. For most of us, it's really, it's not so easy because we have spent most of our lives doing our best to avoid this in all the different ways that we do. And there are times when it can feel like the hardest thing that we could ask ourselves to do. Because coming face to face with ourselves and some of the conditioning that's there often reveals these deeply habituated tendencies in the mind of desire and aversion and judgment and resistance and denial and, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) I mean, okay, we get it. It's not easy. It's challenging at times. Sometimes it's, it is easy. You know, there's moments where it's, ah. And there are other times when, you know, it takes all we've got just to stay here for a few minutes more. It's challenging. It's what we're here for, but it's not always easy and not always a lot of fun. And learning to find a place of freedom in the midst of, of our life and our experience, it's not, it takes great strength of heart. It takes real courage and, uh, as I was saying before, patience, dedication, and, and this quality of kindness. And there are natural ups and downs that come. And so the more um, qualities of kindness, care, compassion, friendliness, acceptance that we can bring to bear, the better off we're going to be. Because it's kind of a big project. (laughs) At least for me, I'll speak from personal experience, I am finding (laughs) over quite a few years now that this is a fairly big project for me. (laughs) And... um, there is sign, there, it's, I, there's, I'm quite hopeful, I will tell you this. And I am blessed with, I have, I have a huge amount of faith in this practice and its potential, like giant amount. I have so much, I'm giving it all to you and I will not run out. You can have it all. A teacher of mine, colleague and teacher, um, once quoted, uh, had a short quote from a, it's a, an old samurai poem, I think, 
or maybe a code. It said, one of the lines was, I make my mind my friend. Maybe that's the one good thing. I hope that's the one good thing, you know, <laughs> worthwhile thing that one of you will get. You know, what a great possibility that we might make friends with our own mind and heart. I actually, this is something, this is a, something I have noticed a big shift for me. I actually feel like I have made friends with my own mind and heart, and I guarantee you that is not where I started. But, you know, we often approach our practice as though we're setting out into battle, <laughs> you know, and we, we're in contention with our mind and heart, and it's our enemy, not our ally, and we don't have this attitude of befriending our own our own heart. We hold it as either, you know, it's our adversary, it's an enemy to be subdued, or it's a problem to be fixed. We see ourselves as a problem that needs fixing. We hold ourselves this way so much of the time, at least I have, and still do at times. And we relate to our experience with criticism and judgment But as Michelle was saying, or someone, I think Michelle does say this a lot, so I'm going to attribute it to her. (laughs) Our practice requires this intention to understand rather than to judge. This is our intention, needs to be our intention. We need acceptance rather than struggle and resistance, and we need kindness instead of blame. This is... uh, a quotation from the Buddha in one teaching in one of the collections. He said, therefore you should train yourself thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidated, exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourself. My favorite part of this is is making it our vehicle. I, 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 I have this image of my awareness riding on the vehicle of loving kindness, rolling along on friendliness and care. One way that I find that we can start to do this in a kind of simple, direct way, we can touch this quality of kindness or care or friendliness, whatever words you might use. If we connect with our willingness to show up for our life, to show up for the moment, however it is, you know, to care for our life by, by being here and by not abandoning ourselves when it's difficult in these two ways. There's loving kindness right in that. And it can be really simple and um, doesn't involve a big sort of project. And if we can connect in this way, okay, I'm gonna just show up for my life and I'm gonna try to hold it tenderly. Maybe tenderness is a good word there. I'm gonna hold it tenderly. I mean, it's the only mind and heart and life. We don't have another one. We're not gonna get another one. And as weird as ours might be, you know, it's, we kind of get used to it. And we know it's, we start to know that inner terrain. And, and so can we hold it? We need to hold it with care and tenderness 
Start trying to touch into that. And through this whole process, we start to see that this, this quality of friendliness, of acceptance, of kindness, is, it's born of, it starts to arise out of our understanding and wisdom as that deepens and grows. And as we open to this, the truth of what it is to be human and this unreliable, uncontrollable nature of, of life on this plane, in this conditioned realm, as we really start to open and see, yeah, that's the way it is. This response of, of care, of tenderness, of kindness, that starts to arise just naturally and spontaneously. You know, As our awareness opens us to the truth of life and the way things really are, and we, we start to see how conditioning and habits of reactivity have been operating in our lives, and they start to fall away a little bit, or we start to see through them. And they can happen, and, and we don't get hooked by them quite so much. Some of them stick around. They stick around, let me tell you. But these, ha- these, these, these qualities of compassion and care, they, they start to uh, organically, naturally arise. And as these understandings that come through our meditation start to deepen and they, they start to empty us out in a certain way, you could say. And as we empty out, what we find is that kindness and care and love is what remains inside there. That's what's there, it's already there. We're not getting something we don't have. We're not realizing something that isn't here always. We're just getting some clutter out of the way so we can see it. Because we're swimming in the truth and if we're not swimming in it all the time, it's not the real deal. But we don't see it all the time. We get tastes and glimpses. And those are real. Someone once asked, many of you may have heard of this famous teacher, Deepama. Michelle, I don't know if anyone else. Rebecca, did you meet Deepama? Maybe. Rebecca and Michelle both uh, met her. And Michelle uh, took care of her when she was uh, here teaching once. And someone once asked her if they should practice... uh, Vipassana or, or loving-kindness practice, metta. And she said, uh, at least to this one person, from my own experience, there's no real difference between mindfulness and loving-kindness. For her, the qualities of love and awareness were one thing, and they ultimately uh, were going in the same direction. They lead to the same place. And in, in some really essential way, the practice of freedom is the practice of love, and the practice of love is the practice of freedom. And so if we make this quality of loving kindness our vehicle, if we make this, if we let our awareness ride on it, cruising along, it's got good shock absorbers, nice big tires, we make this our vehicle, then this, this response of kindness starts to become more and more just the natural movement of the mind and the heart. And love and wisdom start to intertwine and flow together like currents in a river, or like strands in a cable that uh, they make one another stronger. They inform and strengthen each other. This is from one of my teachers, uh, in, in Burma, a teacher named Sayadaw Jyotika. He said, how can you make your mind your real friend? 
by practicing mindfulness, by really watching your mind, really paying attention throughout the day. And then you will see the truth about your mind. And when you see the truth, gradually it will become purer and purer and it will become your friend. So I'm going to leave you with... um, this is my, one of my very favorite poems. And it's kind of a, it's my meta wish for you. It's a meta poem. It's called The Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. It's by Ursula K. Le Guin. And it's weird and beautiful. <clears throat> Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet and let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. And may your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So we'll just have a a couple minutes of quiet here. So there's about a half. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.